Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is the perils and pitfalls of modeling. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who just need to get caught up to speed on a particular issue. And as usual, I'm joined today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So today we want to talk about the perils and pitfalls of modeling. And no, we're not talking about fashion modeling, Instagram modeling, or anything like that. Airplane modeling? Not airplane modeling. Mm -hmm. uh, although I'm sure there are perils and pitfalls to fashion modeling and Instagram modeling as well. No, we're talking about something much more boring. We're talking about using computers and mathematical models to try to predict future outcomes. Now, we at the Institute for Policy Innovation actually have quite a bit of experience with this issue of economic modeling. And what we're talking about here is the idea of if a particular change in tax policy or economic policy is being considered by Congress, the question is, okay, well, does anyone have a guess at what the result of this would be? Okay, if we raise this tax, if we lower that tax, if we change this, what's going to happen? Will it create more jobs or will it create fewer jobs? Will it create more economic growth? Will it create less economic growth? Will it encourage inflation? Uh, what are the various ramifications of this thing that's being considered? And we have offices in the federal government. We have the Joint Tax Committee, mm -hmm. and we have the Congressional Budget Office that are tasked with doing this kind of modeling. And many, many employees and many millions of dollars are spent on this. So if you have a, let's say, let's say Steny Hoyer in the house has a bill, has a tax bill and he needs it to be scored. It's called scoring. So he would send it to the congressional budget office. He would request a score of his proposal and they would run it through their models, their mathematical models. And then they would come out and say, here's our estimate of the results of this. And in a time of huge budget deficits and escalating national debt, if you can argue that your plan will help to reduce the deficit or that it will not add to the debt, uh, that you like that. That's favorable. That might actually help you get your legislation through. If, on the other hand, your legislation is scored as as adding to the deficit, adding to the debt, uh, at least in any rational world, that would be a negative thing. The Congressional Budget Office is supposed to be nonpartisan in That's a right. sense. The Congressional Budget Office is considered nonpartisan. The Joint Tax Committee is bipartisan. Mm -hmm. It's got both Democrats and Republicans on it. And they both do scoring, although the Congressional Budget Office is sort of considered the gold standard. Yes. Now, we should mention that private organizations also do economic modeling and scoring like this. And at least for a portion of IPI's history, we did it. And we would produce what were considered to be dynamic scores of, especially during the Clinton years, the Clinton administration, the Clinton administration, Clinton administration would come out with a, a tax plan or whatever, and the Congressional Budget Office would score it, Joint Tax would score it, but the Institute for Policy Innovation would also score it. And then you have private firms like PricewaterhouseCooper would mm -hmm. score it, and you would have economic consulting firms that would do modeling and scores. And the Heritage Foundation, for a number of years, 
would also do these alternate scores, like this is what we think will be the result of this. Now, it's interesting because you said the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, is considered the gold standard, but that's a strange comment because I'm trying to remember when they've ever been right about well, that's, anything. That's, <laughs> you know, there was this whole argument about the assumptions that you use when you're doing modeling, right? And we probably don't want to get too deeply in the weeds on this, but this was the argument between dynamic scoring and static scoring, right? And static scoring would assume that if you're going to raise taxes by 5%, that's going to result in something like 5% more federal revenue because it assumed nothing would change. Whereas dynamic scoring would attempt to take into account changes in behavior. And I'll, I'll just give an example. I remember when Ross Perot, who was running as a presidential candidate, wanted to increase the gas tax. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, you know, if we use X million gallons or billion gallons of gasoline a year and you add a 10% or 15% gas tax mm-hmm. on there for each gallon, you would get X number of dollars. Right. But if the gas tax goes up, maybe I don't drive as much, or maybe I commute, or maybe we or get maybe some you, other people. you buy a more fuel-efficient car do that. so that you use less gas. Right. So it's, it's those kinds of and, – and people, you know, we may, we may argue about the degree to which people are rational, but people are more or less rational. And so the people who advocate dynamic scoring, and we advocate dynamic scoring – would argue that you can't just assume that people's behavior will not change when you change taxes. If you're going to lower the capital gains tax, that will encourage people to sell long-term stocks and bonds and things like that because of the lower tax rate. If you're going to take away the home mortgage interest deduction, then fewer people are probably going to own homes. So people do change their behavior based on changes in tax policy. But the big point here is the point you made earlier, is that anyone who does any of this kind of economic modeling, they know ahead of time they're going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> You're always going to be wrong because the thing you're trying to model is impossibly complex and you can't predict what's going to happen. So what you're, when you do this kind of modeling, you're always modeling against what's called a baseline. And the baseline assumption is if present trends continue, right? That's always the baseline. Mm-hmm. But the problem is present trends never continue because you can't predict when a Hurricane Katrina is going to come along or a 100-year pandemic or a change in the weather or a housing crisis or the return of inflation. You can't predict these things. Your model can't possibly predict them. And so When you have these various kinds of economic modeling that goes on, you know ahead of time that it's more art than science. In fact, I'm not sure it's even science at all. You know, just because something is logical and rational doesn't mean it's scientific, Mm -hmm. right? You know, something can only really be called science if it is subject to being interrogated by the scientific method, right? And a lot of the stuff you can't observe. They're really only educated guesses when you're doing this kind of modeling. And you know going in, that some of your assumptions are going to be wrong. So you know that the result of your model, no matter how accurate your model is, it's not going to be right. You're just kind of hoping you're you're wrong in the general correct direction. So let's say I'm a a, uh, economic modeler and I'm trying to create a new model here. How do I come to the point where I think, okay, I think I've got it about right. Is there any way for me to test it? Well, the the best modelers do what's called backcasting, right? Uh, Or hindcasting, I've seen it called where you actually go back in time and you say, okay, so we, I know what happened from the period, you know, 1978 to 85, 
given the way my model works, would my model have come anywhere close to predicting what actually happened in mm -hmm. the past, right? And so, you know, we're not like dumping on the exercise of modeling because policymakers do need some they need some guidance right. when they're considering these things, right? So, you know, your best hope would be somebody puts forth a bill and the model says uh, this will result in, you know, 600,000 new jobs created. It may be that when that bill's passed, it only results in 225,000 new jobs created. But you hope it's at least right about the fact that it will create jobs as opposed to killing jobs. You know, if your model says that a particular bill is going to create 600,000 new jobs and it turns out, that it lost 600,000 new jobs, then your model isn't just off a little bit. Your model's way off. But, you know, that actually brings up one of the points where there's there's this general assumption that it, tax cuts end up costing the federal government revenue and tax increases gain revenue for the government. And, in fact, some of the modeling will, especially the dynamic modeling scoring, shows just the opposite of that. So right. sometimes it's not just, uh, I think it's going to create 500,000 jobs versus 600. Sometimes it's, I think it's going to create 500,000 jobs and something else might say, I think it's going to actually cost 500,000 yes, jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, we have, we have peers and friends and colleagues who do economic modeling. And as I said, you know, in the past IPI has done economic modeling. So there are reasons why this is done because policymakers need guidance. They need at least some sense in which, the result of this legislation is going to at least be in the neighborhood of what our intentions are or what our goals are. But you know going in that an economy is just too difficult of a thing. There's just too many variables. There's too many unknowns that you could ever hope to just accurately be able to predict the outcome of a piece of legislation. One of the things I think is really valuable in these models is it forces people to discuss their assumptions. Yes, absolutely. So if you if you think that taxes always, if you think you can keep raising taxes and that doesn't affect human behavior and people don't change some of the things they do, and so by raising these taxes, you're necessarily going to get more tax revenue in the federal government, it forces that kind of discussion yes. where you're discussing, well, if you raise these taxes this high, there's going to be people who change their behavior. Right. And one of our long-term complaints about economic modeling is exactly the point you just made about disclosing their assumptions. Most of the time, they won't disclose their assumptions. They keep them in a black box and they'll say things like, well, this is our proprietary information, right? And, you know, if you're a private company, if you're PricewaterhouseCoopers or whatever, yeah, that is your proprietary. Your model is proprietary, right? You're not going to disclose it to people. But when you talk about CBO and the Joint Tax Committee, these are taxpayer-funded organizations who are supposedly serving the public. And so it's been a big complaint of ours over the years that they don't open up their models, they don't open up their black boxes, and they don't share what their assumptions are. Because if you're assuming that the private sector is more productive than the government sector, right, then a tax cut should result in more economic growth and a tax increase should result in less economic growth. But, you know, is CBO assuming that the private sector is more productive than the government sector? They won't tell us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they won't tell us because it's it's a hidden assumption in their black box. And sometimes I've noticed they actually tell you, but it's in footnotes at the very end of right. the study that nobody looks right. at. Well, they'll tell you some of their assumptions, but not all of their assumptions, and, and, right? And there was a situation where when we were looking at passing the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. Obamacare, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and one of the left-leaning think tanks was saying, well, we've done it. We've had this model and the uh, the increase in Medicaid spending, the federal government's expansion of Medicaid is going to increase uh, growth in various communities by billions and billions of dollars because the federal government's going to be spending all this money right. on health care for the poor. And I thought, well, wait a minute, if, if the federal government's spending this money, if it's putting the money out there, where is it getting the money from? Because yeah. it, it can't spend the money unless it either borrows it or creates it yep. or taxes it. And so when you go back and look in the, in the footnotes at the very end of the study, it said, we didn't actually calculate the impact of how much money you would have to take out of the economy <laughs> in order to be able to do this. Right. So they're only, they were only estimating the one side of the ledger, how much increase do you get in, in uh, economic activity if your government spends all this money without ever asking the question, how much decrease in economic activity once you take the money, a dollar away from Peter and give it to Paul, which yep. most of us would say, that's still just a dollar. Exactly. But and, and you know, we should point out that what we're describing are what we're describing so far, at least in this podcast, are legitimate attempts to do legitimate modeling. Mm-hmm. And even le- your legitimate attempt to do legitimate modeling, you're still going to be wrong, right. right? Just because you know, we did a policy basics podcast on Hayek's knowledge problem. Things are just too complicated. There's just too many variables. But, you know, sometimes people don't even bother to model. Sometimes they just make promises. And when you were talking about health care, it reminded me of this promise somehow that under Obamacare, people's insurance premiums were going to go down. Yes. Which, of course, $2,500 a year for a family of four. Which turned out to be just a complete joke. They went up $2,500 a year for a family of four. So, you know, if if they even bothered to try to do legitimate modeling, their model was completely off. I suspect they didn't even bother to try it. Mm -hmm. I suspect that was just literally, we're just going to say this, right? And it reminds me of not too long ago when President Biden was saying that his Build Back Better plan would help to reduce inflation. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I've got this letter signed by all this economists who say if we pass my Build Back Better plan, it will reduce inflation, which is ludicrous. Yep. And, you know, that's just that's just a political claim. That's not actually a legitimate attempt to do modeling. Now, we've been talking about economic modeling. But there's also another major modeling that goes on out there that's in the, in the media all the time, and that's climate modeling. That's, exa- that's exactly right. So however suspicious you should be when you hear a politician make economic claims and say, my plan is going to have all these various economic outcomes, now you have this situation with climate change, right? Mm-hmm. And, and where modeling when it comes to legislation and economics is a side plot, but when it comes to climate change, modeling is at this whole center of the whole debate. It's and the whole got, center of the and debate. And you've got climate scientists who are literally making predictions and saying that we need to transform our entire world. We need to transform our economies. We need to make these how we live, how, how we, we trans- live, how, how we, we run our businesses. Go from one place to another. Trillions and trillions of dollars worth of changes and costs to the global economy based on computer modeling. And it turns out that however inaccurate economic modeling is, it turns out that climate modeling is apparently even less accurate. And, you know, there, the Wall Street Journal ran a news article. This isn't an opinion piece, but a news article here recently, and the title of it was Climate scientists encounter computer model limits, bedeviling policy. Mm-hmm. And, and what it's about, it, they're talking about a, an international consortium of scientists, and they spent five years 
uh, trying to figure out the role of clouds in climate models. This mm-hmm. clouds. And it says they've reworked 2.1 million lines of supercomputer code used to explore the future of the of climate change and the intricate equations that are involved in it. Now, what they're focusing on in this piece is clouds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because clouds are, when you're talking about greenhouse gases. Yeah, I mean, clouds are like everything. Uh, cl- right? <laughs> clouds are about 80 to 90% of greenhouse gases. Right. Clouds. Right. Water vapor. And again, because clouds, they, they, they hold in heat. Right. If they reflect certain, they reflect certain things from above, but they hold in things from below. So if you listen to a news person saying well, it's going to be a little warmer tonight because we've got clouds covering a blanket of clouds covering, so it's going to keep the heat in. Mm-hmm. That can actually keep warm air in the air. But also, if you're out on the uh, in Texas on a hot summer's day, you're thankful for a cloud to come up in front of the sun yes. because those clouds actually reflect the sun, they block the sun, and they have a cooling effect at times, which reduces evaporation right. from lakes and rivers and things like that. Sure. And of course, and of course, clouds can change. You can get up in the morning and be cloudy, and a few hours it's bright, clearer, mm-hmm. and a few more hours it's completely cloudy again. Right. right. And so. Climate scientists have had fits trying to model these things, and if you talk to the honest ones, they'll tell you they've had fits trying to do well, it. Well, speaking of which, I, I have that article here in front of me, mm-hmm. and I would just like to just take a minute or two just to read some quotes from yes, this article. Yes, go right okay? ahead. Um, the scientists find that even the best tools at hand can't model climates with the sureness the world needs as rising temperatures impact almost every region. Here's another one. Here's a climate modeler who says, you solve one problem, but you create another. Okay, this again, this is referring to these mathematical mm-hmm. models and the assumptions behind them. Scientists have abandoned their most extreme calculations of climate sensitivity. Okay, so a lot of the stuff we were hearing in just very recent years about all of these extremes that were going to happen, they have now abandoned those. So, okay, well, what if we had made a whole bunch of very significant policy decisions based on that incorrect modeling. This journal article, this Wall Street Journal article says that climate models are hitting a wall. They were running up against the complexity of the physics involved. The new models are still too imprecise to be taken at face value. Right. Um, That's quotes from them. That's Exactly. These are quotes from climate modelers, okay? Here's one who says, we have a conundrum. So this article is full of quotes like that mm-hmm. that are simply talking about the fact that we just don't know how to do this in any consistent, reliable way. And literally, they're running into the limits of computing power. Uh, there's, there's scientists in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado, who would like to delve more deeply into the behavior of clouds, ice sheets, and aerosols, but they are straining the capacity of their supercomputers. A more detailed scale would require a thousand times more computing power. Yep. So as we were saying about when a politician tells you, you know, my plan is going to do X, Y, and Z, it might. It probably won't because at at best that's based on incomplete legitimate economic modeling. And at worst, it might just be a political complaint. But it, it has to be, based on what we are reading in this journal article and other places, mm-hmm. that trying to model the climate 
is much more complicated and much more difficult than trying to do economic modeling. Right. There's so many variables there. And it's 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 people have known it for some time. But ironically, when you hear the news come on, I, I've heard news anchors say, if we're not talking about speculation, we're talking about the science, mm-hmm. climate science, and then they immediately start going to the ref- computer models, right? Where they're talking about what you know what's happening yeah, there. Yeah. And most of the over the past couple of decades, most of the computer models, the climate science models, have been wrong, mm-hmm. greatly overestimating the amount of heating that they were seeing. That's right. And they come, they they always come back and say, and they say in this article that you were quoting, we we, we realized we were wrong, we realized we were overestimating, but now we've right. got it. Now we got it right. Now we've got it much better. We're much but, better at doing this. But, now. but but amazingly enough, in the article that you and I are referencing, they're not even doing that. They're they're essentially admitting yeah. Yeah. that they they aren't doing a good job or, the, or that they don't have reliable models. Right. And you know. Look, but they do say in there they're they're getting better. Oh sure. Well, you know because they're devo- they're devoted to the cause. But right? I've been hearing that we're getting better at this right. for two decades now. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to go too far off on a philosophical tangent, but you know the reason I mentioned before that not everything that's logical and rational is actual science is that as you say we are constantly told that this is the science. Right. And if if you don't take at face value what the climate modeling industry tells you, then you're a science denier. But literally, here they are telling us that their models don't work or that their models are not accurate. They 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 don't understand the climate factors enough. They don't have enough computing power to even run the models they would like to run. Mm-hmm. And so imagine, again, imagine if we had Totally, if we had already totally transformed the global economy based on models that they now admit were wrong and were inaccurate. And so what we would urge people to do is just in general, when you hear people making claims based on modeling, whether it's economic modeling or climate modeling, uh, there should be a gigantic big asterisk in your mind next to that claim, right. next to that assertion. And again, if something really is science, it is observable, it is testable, and it is replicable, right? It is subject to the scientific method. And just because a scientist is doing something doesn't make it science. And also be aware that scientists are subject to the same sort of human draws that all of us are. Mm-hmm. In, in this sense, if you publish a science model, if you publish a, mo- a climate model that says, eh, world's not you know it's doing fine we may the, we may see water levels rise a little bit here and there but we're gonna you don't you don't get attention you're not gonna get funding and you don't get government funding <laughs> that's right that's you don't exactly get private right. sector funding that's from right that. so you th- there are incentives here to come out with the biggest uh with the with the biggest broadest claims that you can mm-hmm. about how bad things are going to be and then you get the headlines and then you get attention, and then you're more likely to get funding, the, especially from the Biden administration. That's, that's, well, that's so important. The, the bigger and scarier the problem, the more urgent it is, and therefore the more money we need to throw at it. And so it's not exactly a coincidence that the person who is making the argument that the problem is so big and scary is also the recipient of the government grants, right? Right. And so we, we don't want to – we're not trashing climate models or mm-hmm. their efforts – we're just trying to bring some perspective in here. Perspective that and, they, and a healthy skepticism. Ha- healthy skepticism that they they are, are probably wrong, just as I, 
I, I find the, my weatherman, weatherman that I watch at night frequently is wrong on various things for whether the next day or the next two days. But you, you, you sort of listen to what they have. You take it into consideration. Mm-hmm. You know there may be changes. Yep. Uh, things, things do change. And you also know, at least with co- climate science and climate modeling, that there are economic incentives to make bolder claims than you would That's otherwise right. want to do. That's exactly right. So we, we, should, we should make a point of saying that our purpose in this discussion, we're not denying climate change. Right. Uh, and we're also not comparing, although it's tempting to do so, we're also not comparing weather forecasting to climate science because it is tempting to say if they can't even predict the weather three days from now, why would they think that they can predict the climate 50 years from now? Right. Although I think there's probably a lot to that. Um, but I do think that that the public at large tends to think that anything that is called science is actually science. And not everything that is called science is actually science. An awful lot of it is speculation. An awful lot of it are the results of these imperfect and imprecise models. And some of it is just good intentions, mislabeled as science. Well, you can find much more about economic modeling and about good policy at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.